In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you have I, I have leaned from before my birth, for you are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. <clears throat> I have been as important to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will continually hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remember them. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O oh God, reaches the high heaven you have done great things, O God, who is like you. You, who have made me see many troubles and calamities, will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you that you speak to us. Would you speak to your people now as we uh, give our attention to your word? As we pause in the ordinariness of our lives to um, spend time focused on your word, God, we pray that uh, we wouldn't hear just my words, but that by the power of your spirit through 
um, these ancient words that Jesus would be more fully um, in our presence, present in our lives, that we might be more like him, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you remember the game that uh, is called Lifeboat. Um, you may have had done this like ex- as a sociological experiment in a, in a class in college, or you may have played this game uh, late at night uh, at a sleepover in middle school. Uh, Lifeboat is the game where you know you've got uh, there's 12 people floating in a lifeboat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And uh, there's a dozen people there, but you've only got the space and rations for 10 people. And so as a group, you've got to argue and debate and decide who's going to get kicked off the lifeboat. It's sort of an adolescent game, isn't it? It's kind of like perversely cruel. (laughs) And so we debate and we talk about who's the most valuable and who is the weakest link. I think there are entire television franchises based on this uh, whole premise now. Um... And I think it's like, I feel like everybody's, there's this kind of nervous laughter every once in a while this morning as I'm talking about this. I think it's uncomfortable to think about because it brings to the surface the reality that we tend to look at the world with a scarcity mindset. Uh, If you're floating in a life raft, you've only got so much time, so many resources, a very limited number of them, and you don't want to waste them on those who are unworthy of them, right? We tend to look at the world with a scarcity mindset and that means that some people are more valuable and others are therefore expendable. Resources are finite, so we have to look out for ourselves. This morning we're beginning a new uh, sermon series called Generations on Mission because as we enter into this new year, one of the challenges that I think we face is the question of, What does it look like for us to follow Jesus together? What does it look like for Trinity Church in 2023 to follow Jesus, uh, not just each of us individually on our own paths in life, but what does it look like for us to follow Jesus together as a people Um, holding hands, walking together, because I think it's pretty easy for us to talk about following Jesus. It's easy to talk about following Jesus together. But we live in a world that's increasingly divided, increasingly polarized, um, increasingly segregated by um, what newspaper you read, what cable news channel you uh, pay attention to, what authors you read, um, do you live in an urban or rural context? Uh, these, these external markers increasingly separate us from one another, and it's harder and harder to uh, walk with people who don't check all of the same boxes the same way that we do. Increasingly, I think the lifeboat ethic, where we say, I just have to do what's best for me, characterizes the world that we live in. Um, people say things like, I just have to look out for myself. We've turned selfishness into a virtue in our culture. 
And I would argue that it is that exact mentality that is undermining Christian witness in the culture that we live in. It's that exact mindset. Because at the heart of Christianity is a God who gave himself away for the sake of others. In fact, a God who gave himself away for the sake of those who were trying to, who were killing him. That's the essence of Christianity. Um, The lifeboat ethic is the exact opposite of the gospel ethic. The The lifeboat ethic says protect yourself at all cost, but the ethic of grace says I will lay down my rights to defend you. And the reason I think that Christian witness in our world is being undermined is that our world too often sees Christians who talk about grace but live by the lifeboat ethic. We, uh, in our world, see Christians that talk about grace and love and self-sacrifice but in practice appeal to their own rights rather than using our rights to defend others, especially the vulnerable. And so as we think about what does it look like to follow Jesus together in this new year, I think we've got to start with just being brutally honest about that reality. And I think the question is, how does the ethic of grace come to characterize the way in which we live together? And again, I I want to talk about this, not just in a general sense, but what does this look like for us as a church? Trinity Church, San Luis Obispo, what does it look like for increasingly that eth- the ethic of grace to characterize our life together. And so in this series, Generations on Mission, I want to explore the ethic of grace through the lens of generations. Because one of the many, many, many ways in which we get sideways with each other is through generational misunderstanding and mischaracterization. Uh, We're now living at a time where it's more common to highlight uh, what differentiates differentiates us from other people. And just age and generational differences are one of the ways in which we do that. And the reality is that each generation displays both the beauty and goodness, but also the brokenness and sinfulness of our world in unique ways. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to look at one of the Bible Psalms each week and apply it to each of the six generations that is represented here at our church. And my hope is that we'll see that uh, each generation is shaped by significant cultural and historical events, especially those which happened, uh, took place during their adolescence. That each generation offers strengths that we need to honor and appreciate and we need to highlight and we need to value in our church. And each generation also has inherent weaknesses. And grace means that we shouldn't try to defend ourselves against our inherent or generational weaknesses as much as we should rely on others in our body in those areas of weakness. And so my hope is that this series will give us a glimpse in what it, into what it can look like for Trinity to live in light of God's grace and embody an ethic of grace in San Luis Obispo County. And so the theme verse for um, this series, we actually prayed in our prayer of confession this morning and the end of Psalm 79, 
Psalm 79, 13 says, but we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. One generation disciples the next. And so today we're going to begin this series, um, beginning this series this morning with the oldest generation uh, represented in our church, which is most often called, referred to as the silent generation, or uh, sometimes called the traditionalist generation, but I'm going to call it the silent generation. Um, because when we think about that ethic of the, the lifeboat ethic versus the grace, the ethic of grace, We would never, ever say what I'm about to say out loud. We would never want to say this. But if we think about the ethic of the lifeboat kind of mentality where we've got to vote somebody off the lifeboat, I think this tragic reality is that we sort of by default vote the oldest generation off the lifeboat. But the ethic of grace works in the opposite direction. So the silent generation, Psalm 71 The silent generation uh, was born between 1928 and 1945, and they are currently 77, between the ages of 77 and 94. Not the oldest, uh, there are some people who are older than that (laughs) Uh, in our world, uh, many people, more than a few, Uh, but I think in our church, I'm pretty sure that's the oldest uh, generation represented in our church. Members of the silent generation were born mostly during the Great Depression in the 1930s and the buildup and then experience of World War II in the 40s. Several significant events took place during the kind of coming of age of this generation. Uh, The atomic bomb, the Korean War, the creation of the interstate highway system, the ability to drive across the country very easily. The ubiquity of television, the ubiquity of being able to get on a plane and fly somewhere else in the world. The polio vaccine became common during uh, this generation's time. After World War II, the silent generation came of age during the 1950s, during a time of unparalleled economic prosperity in this country. In a time when much of the rest of the world was rebuilding after World War II, America had all of these factories that had ramped up for the war effort that now could be converted into just building cheap stuff. And uh, the silent generation enjoyed the, uh, the fruit of that reality. There was a time of unparalleled economic prosperity, and yet that prosperity existed against the backdrop of the threat of the spread of communism, the Cold War, and the constant threat of nuclear war. Um, They also lived much of their lives during the civil rights era. And so the silent generation uh, has this uh, kind of unique, one of the things I think that characterizes the silent generation is that no generation has lived with both the prosperity and vulnerability of the silent generation. The silent generation was the first generation to overwhelmingly receive a college education. 
They lived with optimism. Their entire lifespan has taken place within the American century, which is a time when American political, economic, and cultural expansion and prosperity seemed like the norm. And yet that optimism was coupled with a realism that in any moment, nuclear war could become a reality. A cold war could go hot. There was the, uh, the spread of communism. The silent generation makes up approximately 7% of the population of the US. And as far as I can tell, the silent generation makes up about 3% of the congregation here at Trinity. No generation, like I said, has lived with a combination of prosperity and danger that characterized the silent generation. And so I think that the theme for the silent generation, especially as we think of this generation as the oldest contingent in our church, is the theme of both faithfulness and vulnerability. Especially as this generation ages and enters the final season of life, uh, we see increasingly in them the vulnerability that comes with age. And yet the vulnerability that they have modeled to us demonstrates to us the faithfulness of God. And so as we think about how the ethic of grace applies to the silent generation, I want to look at uh, Psalm 71, which tells us that God has created a place for the old. God has created a place for the old. And that really has two sides for us. I think for those of us who are, um, for those who are members of this generation, Psalm 71 says that God has created a place for you. Uh, in a world that tends to not value the old, the church is a place where the old are welcome. But for those of us who are younger, Psalm 71 shows us how much we need this generation and how much we have to learn from them and how much we benefit from their presence in our midst. So Psalm 71, I want to highlight for us four lessons that I think Psalm 71, if we shine the light of Psalm 71 through the lens of the silent generation, we learn about the faithfulness of God. So first, the silent generation shows us that old people help us remember the past faithfulness of God, especially in verses one through six. So Psalm 71 is a prayer from an aging saint reflecting on their final stage of life. And um, the, the original Hebrew text of Psalm 71, some Psalms actually have a title. This Psalm doesn't have a title, but in the English Standard Version, the title that's given to this Psalm is Forsake Me Not When My Strength Is Spent. It's talking about, it's a prayer from an aging saint on the final stage of life. And so we, we see this, uh, that the silent generation shows us that old people help us remember God's faithfulness uh, throughout this psalm. In verse 9, the author says, do not cast me off in my time of old age. Verse 18, so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. The psalm shows us that old people give us perspective and help us to remember that God has always been faithful. Uh, especially in the first six verses, right? And the, the, the psalmist in his old age remembers that God is his refuge in verse one, that God is his rock and fortress in verse three. Looking back at the ups and downs of his life, he sees that the constant thing, despite all the circumstances, has been that God protects him. The author here sees that God is the one who delivers him in verse two and four, and so he puts his hope in God in verse one and verse five. He says, God is the one who has sustained me since birth, in verse 6. 
What this psalm is showing us is that with the perspective of decades, those who are old remind us that God is faithful, not just in moments of difficulty, but always throughout the ages, throughout the generations, throughout the years, God is always faithful. So we live in a time where culturally we don't value old people. Uh, I mean, even to call somebody old feels almost like an insult. Even just writing the phrase, this is what old people tell us, teach us, feels like off color. <laughs> um, but we don't think that about saying, well, this person's young, do we? Uh, so we live in this time where we don't value old people. Our culture is focused on youth and the prevention of aging. And so we want to hide old people away from us. Uh, I've probably, I've mentioned before, uh, many of you know this, that Ashley and I, moved to Scotland when we were 23 to go to grad school. And um, there are many things that surprised us about living in a different culture. There were different ways of doing things. There were things that we weren't used to, things that we didn't recognize. And one of the things that surprised us when we moved to Scotland is that they have old people in Scotland. <laughs> you know, we, we took public transportation and we get on the bus and there's old people there. And we went to church, and our church was like 200 years old. And there were old people in our church. And there were, there were people who were retired that invited us over for dinner. And there were, uh, as we got to know them, there were people in our church who had been going to that church longer than we had been alive. And um, growing up in the 80s and 90s in uh, California, I mean, aside, like, I saw my, my grandparents. Aside from my grandparents, we hardly see old people. We prefer to, like, kind of put them away and let them die. And in Scotland, they have old people. It's amazing. Um, most of my time as a pastor, uh, I think I've been a pastor for, I don't know, 17 years, something like that. Most of my time as a pastor, I've started new churches where we gather young families or I've ministered to college students. Um, this is the first time I've pastored a church that has like the full range of generations. And it's awesome. I love it. Um, it's such a blessing as we welcome babies that we also have the perspective of older Christians who have raised their own babies, who have seen their grandbabies uh, grow up. It's fantastic. We need that kind of perspective. Uh, people who show us in a culture that is obsessed with youth and afraid of aging and in a world that is swayed by the issues of the moment or by the crisis of the week, that God has been faithful for ages. The silent generation, those who have walked with Jesus over a lifetime of 70, 80, 90 years, are walking reminders that we continue to take refuge in God as our hope for the present and for the future. They encourage us to pray, God, be a present refuge for us because you have been faithful in the past. Uh, I mean, just think about how much has changed uh, during the lifespan of this generation. How much technology, I mean, let's just take one thing that has changed uh, in the lifespan of the silent generation, television. The silent generation was born, um, kind of grew up during a time when owning a television would have been a novelty. Uh, they've lived through that time. They've lived through 
color TV. They lived through the time where um, having a television in every room in the house became normal, where um, they, you, people started building houses around their televisions, right? Now into a time when we're now taking our televisions off the walls again because we carry one with us you know, in our pockets. I mean, it's a dramatic transformation in a lifetime. They've experienced so much, and without them, we would have no example of what faithfulness over a lifetime looks like. And I think it's especially important in a time where we seem to be seeing prominent leaders falling regularly, and where we see friends and family punting on their faith, punting on the church, punting on their marriages, punting on Jesus. Maybe we're prone to look at older, the older folks in our midst and think, well, they're just very traditional. You know, they grew up in simpler times. They don't really understand what it's like to live in a changing world. Are you kidding me? <laughs> think about how much change they have seen. No generation has experienced the sorts of changes that the silent generation has experienced. The oldest people in our church, they link us to a past that we cannot remember. They're a bridge between a past that we cannot remember and a future that they will not see. And they're praying for us to be faithful. And they're showing us what faithfulness looks like. They are the only model we have of what it looks like to walk with Jesus throughout a lifetime. And that's beautiful. Secondly, old people are exposed and they expose us to the reality that we are weak and vulnerable. Verses 7 through 11. Verse 9 speaks of a sobering reality. The author here says, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. Verses 10 and 11. Uh, For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue him and seize him. For there is none to deliver him. Sin means that we have enemies both uh, within and without. And one of the fears inherent in growing old is the fear of being forgotten or becoming irrelevant and being ignored. Uh, Over the summer, uh, after I had accepted your call to be our new pastor, we were uh, getting ready to leave. Ashley and I, our family, were getting ready to leave Colorado. And we were uh, having kind of a final uh, time with some older, an older couple in our church there. And Ashley and I asked them, like, what, I'm going to, for the first time in my life, going to pastor a church that has retired people in it. Uh, what, what do I need to know about, about what, what are the challenges that you face as you enter this season of life? And um, they were so grateful that we even thought to ask them that question. Uh, because they said that we feel like we, we just kind of get put on the shelf. And, uh, and the church kind of ignores us. And so they were grateful that we'd even thought to ask, but um, there's this sense, I think, that retiring feels like to some people ceasing to be useful or not having anything to offer or um, not being asked if you do have something to offer. And that is not the case at all. And these friends, they t- I remember they told us two things specifically. They said, as you get um, older and as you're retired, there are fewer places to make new friends in life. I remember my, uh, my grandmother, 
um, who passed away almost 20 years ago now. I remember my, my grandmother saying, I don't make new friends because they just die. <laughs> it's morbid, but she just, well, so what does she do? She stays home by herself and watches TV. It's tragic. Where do you go to find friends? God has created a place for the old in this church. That's beautiful. Um, but the other thing that our friends told us, uh, they talked about the increased vulnerability that comes with age. And uh, the man is, you know, a pretty savvy guy, and he says, you know, we're probably entering into a recession. And people who are retired are at a point in life where your, um, your financial reality is sort of locked in. And as we enter into a recession, that has profound impacts for people who are living on retirement income and the value of your retirement portfolio just went down by 25%. And so he said, look out for, pe- for retired people in your church who aren't like, making their doctor's appointments. <laughs> there, there's just the reality of the vulnerability that comes with age around um, physical health and mobility and finances. And part of what we need to be aware of uh, and take from that is that it's our responsibility to care for the older members in our church, for parents, for friends, but also we need to take from this the reality that we are frail too. That those of us who um, you know, think that we're still strong and young are still frail and vulnerable. And I think the church, uh, if I'm speaking honestly, has done a pretty poor job of preparing us for that reality. Uh, the, the church generally has done a poor job of preparing us for the reality of what life will look like. I, I feel like um, when I look back on my own ministry and in days past and, and, and when I look at other places, it feels like sometimes the, the way that we do church prepares us for like a Sunday afternoon birthday party. <laughs> like you're going to do this thing and it's going to be fun and it's going to be over really quick. <laughs> and now the world feels like it's changing and it feels like the church has not prepared people to live in the world that we're living in. And I kind of had this morbid thought this week, but have you ever read the book The Road by Cormac McCarthy? It's really dark, or there's a movie too. Um, but it's basically the story of the, we, something's happened, there's been some sort of apocalypse, and there's a father and a son and they're just walking down a road, and that's basically the book. And they're trying to find food, and every once in a while, some tragedy like rushes out at them, and there's the occasional joy, and they don't really know how long it's going to last, and they don't really know where they're going. And I thought, that's kind of what life is like. I mean, it's not all awful and dark, but we don't know exactly where we're going and there are joys and there are sorrows and we, we don't know what it's going to look like when we get there and it's going to be tough. And the silent generation models for us what it is like to live that sort of a life. And Psalm 71 shows us that though we are weak and vulnerable, God will not forsake us. He will not forget us. Third, Old people have the great ministry of reminding us of the faithfulness of God. 
they, they don't just point to the faithfulness of God, but their lives are a ministry to us to remind us that God is faithful. Verse 12 is a cry for help. Oh God, be not far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. Verse 13, the psalmist cries out for justice. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. Uh, the example here, um, despite the need, despite seeking to take advantage of the psalmist in his old age, uh, the example he provides for us is in verse 14. He says, despite all these things, verse 14, but I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. Despite all these things that are going on, despite the circumstances, despite his cry for help, he is praising God. You know, it's been said that not everybody who grows old becomes wise, but you only become wise through age. And part of the wisdom that comes with age here is responding to difficulty and adversity, not by fighting back, not by planning your way out of every situation, but by orienting your life towards God. I love verse 18. Verse 18, so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to those, uh, to all who come. Your power to all who come. From generation to generation. How will the next generation know of God's faithfulness if the previous generation doesn't tell them? What this is telling us is that we never really retire from ministry. We never retire from ministering to one another. We might retire from our jobs. Um, but this American attitude that says work hard and then retire so you can live off of the spoils of your work is counter to the gospel. I mean, sure, yes, enjoy your retirement. Take trips. Be with your grandkids. But if retirement means retirement from Jesus and his people, we cannot be surprised when younger generations see older generations retiring from Jesus and his people and younger generations say, well, we'll just quit Jesus now. American culture wants to put old people on the shelf, but the Bible says that you have great value. Your lives are a living, breathing testimony to us of God's faithfulness. We need you to show us uh, that in your lives. We need you to tell us your stories of how you have experienced the faithfulness of God. Because some of us are trying to raise kids and some of us are trying to you know, get through middle age. <laughs> uh, some of us are wondering what the future holds. Some of us are trying to figure out how do we get on top of things financially? How are we gonna make it through the doldrums of our career? And we need to hear your stories of God's faithfulness. The psalm tells us that though our enemies may be great and the circumstances of life may look like they will crush us, old people are a testimony to us that God will win the day. And we need you to remind us of that. And then fourthly, fourth kind of lesson, the light of Psalm 71 shining through the lens of the silent generation is that old people have the present opportunity to inspire, encourage, and enrich us with the testimony of God's saving grace and power. Verses uh, 22 through 24 the end of the psalm, I'm not going to read it, but the psalmist concludes this prayer by resolving to praise God. 
despite all that he has said, that despite confessing these fears that I'm going to be forgotten in my old age. Um, the author doesn't praise God. He, he finishes by resolving to praise God, but he's not resolving to praise God despite everything that he said. He doesn't praise God despite his age, despite his fear of being forgotten. He doesn't praise God despite his vulnerability. Rather, he praises God because of it. Our worship is enriched when those who have remained faithful for years are there to lead us in worshiping God. Uh, Andy Crouch has this fantastic book called Strong and Weak. And um, in this book, he is, uh, he's making the case that real flourishing in life is not a life that comes from everything being bigger and better and stronger and faster, but that real flourishing and hidden strength are revealed in the face of vulnerability. And he gives an example of how the vulnerability of others enrich the lives of everyone. And he, he, he gives the example here, not um, the vulnerability of age, but the vulnerability of his niece, Angela, his uh, sister's daughter, who was born with a condition called trisomy 13. And he, he writes that she could not meaningfully see or hear. She could not walk. She could not feed or bathe herself. She knew nothing of language. We could only guess what she knew or understood of her mother, her father, her grandparents, brothers, sisters, etc. Early on, she would respond uh, to voice and touch. In recent years, she has grown, even though she has grown physically, she had for long seasons receded further into an already distant and unknowable world. And he asks the question, is Angela then flourishing? To which he answers this, flourishing is not actually the property of an individual at all. No matter how able or disabled, it comes as a community. Flourishing describes a community. The real question of flourishing is for the community that surrounds Angela, her parents and siblings, her extended family, the skilled practitioners of medicine and education and nutrition who care for her, and in a wider sense, the society and nation of which she is a citizen. The real test of every human community is how it cares for the most vulnerable, those like Angela who cannot sustain even a simulation of independence and autonomy. The question is not whether Angela alone is flourishing or not. The question is whether her presence in our midst leads us to flourishing together. That's beautiful. Our world says that vulnerability and weaknesses are hindrances to living a full life. But the Bible shows us that vulnerability leads us to the God whose power is made perfect in our weakness. So th think about this with me for a second. Where do we see the power, the strength, the might of God most powerfully displayed? Well, Romans 1 tells us it's in the gospel. It's in the cross. Where does Jesus demonstrate his power most fully? Jesus' power is demonstrated most fully in his moment of greatest vulnerability. As God in human flesh Bearing our sin hangs naked and exposed on the cross. The greatest act of power in world history is taking place. There on the cross, Jesus' vulnerability covers our shame. Jesus' perfection is exchanged for our guilt. There on the cross, those destined for life 
uh, destined for death, are ransomed to new life. This is how the power of God works. It is through vulnerability and weakness that the gospel, that the beauty of the gospel shines. And the truth of the gospel is that what the truth of the gospel is what empowers us to uh, live out and embrace the ethic of grace in our lives. I came across a quote this week from Miroslav Volf, who's a uh, theologian who teaches at Yale. Miroslav Volf says, "Our purpose is to mirror who God is in the world." The true God gives, so we become joyful givers and not just mere receivers. That, I think, is a great summary of the ethic of grace. I mean, think about what that means. God, who, before he created us, before Genesis 1, God was infinitely content in himself. He wasn't lonely. God exists in a community of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wasn't bored. He wasn't lacking anyone to love. He wasn't lacking anything to do. God was infinitely content in himself. And yet, out of his loving relationship with himself, God creates us. And then in the greatest act of vulnerability and powerlessness, he comes to earth and he dies on the cross. And Miroslav Volf is saying, our purpose in life is to model his action. As we see God uh, moving towards us, so we move towards others. We live in a world where we vote, vote the vulnerable and weak off the lifeboat, believing that they are holding us back from thriving or from flourishing. But God shows us that at the moment of greatest weakness, that is when he is most strong. So I'll finish with this. I'm uh, working on this series with a friend of mine who's a pastor um, in Houston named Dennis. And Dennis, we were talking this last week, and Dennis told me about a conversation he had with a friend of his named Lee. And um, Dennis told me that in, in his previous church, Lee was um, one of these older saints in his congregation, and Lee was Dennis's biggest encourager. And he said, Lee would come and just give me great feedback on my preaching. He helped me to grow. But he said that Lee was also the best example of faithfulness to me. Because when uh, Lee and his wife had a child who, at 18 years old, was in an accident and um, became a paraplegic. And he said... um, that their son lived until his 40s, and Lee and his wife uh, cared for their son faithfully until his final day. But Lee, last week, came to Dennis, and he said, Dennis, I grew up in a small town in Texas, and there were 12, uh, I graduated from high school in a class of 12 students, and I found out on Facebook last week that I'm the last one of them alive. You know, the 11 other kids he graduated from high school with, they're all gone. And he said this to Dennis. He said, Dennis, I'm the last one, and the world is a mess, and I don't know why I'm still here. And Dennis said, Lee, you are my biggest encourager, and you are my best example of what faithful, faithfulness looks like, and walk, you know, living a life of walking with Jesus until the end. You have so much to offer me. 
So friends, this is why we need the silent generation in our church. Uh, They have needs. They need things from us. And we need them because in their vulnerability, we see what faithfulness looks like. And we see the God who is faithful to us. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great love for us, your great faithfulness to your people. And we thank you for uh, the older saints in our church. We thank you that you have um, given to us a church that has members of each of the living generations. And I pray, God, that uh, this year as we uh, seek to realistically follow you as a community uh, embodying the ethic of grace. Not what can we get from others, but how can we give up our rights so that the love of Christ might flow through us to others. That you would help us to um, honor and listen to uh, the saints in our midst Uh, who are perhaps in their final stage, final season of life, but have so much to offer us. They show us uh, what it looks like to love you for a lifetime, even as they remind us of our need for you who is faithful throughout all time. And so we thank you for your faithfulness in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, now as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I want to invite you to... uh,